If the security professional just says, oh, this is a C-Surf issue and you need to do blah, blah, blah. When you tell that to developers, that's a work item. If you go over there to them and you go, hey, I found this thing, take a look at this. And you like, you let your nerd flag fly and you walk them through what you did. The, the developer is now on your side, right? Because they saw your eyes light up. They heard the the, the, the tone in your voice, you know, because we're, we're pretty attuned, honestly, to other people who are very, very interested in something, even if it's not something that we like, because we recognize that feeling. Because uh, that, that's why we're convinced to sit in a basement somewhere looking at a screen all day. Uh, you know, that's the thing that brought us here. And so we recognize that. And when we see it in other people, it makes us more empathetic to where they're coming from on stuff. From Cobalt at Home, this is Humans of InfoSec, a show about real people, their work, and its impact on the information security industry. My guest today is Will Gant, an accomplished developer, author, and software architect. He's been interested in computers since grade school, and he made his passion for technology official when he decided to major in computer science. He hosts a podcast called The Complete Developer, which he describes as by coders for coders. Will is writing a book for new developers to help them be successful in their careers, and he writes at GantSoftwareSystems.com. He is self-described as a cross between, quote, a giant dork and a weightlifting hillbilly, and in his free time, he makes homemade wine, mead, and cider, among other hobbies. Will, welcome. Thanks. So how does it feel to be on the other side of the podcast table? It is uh, it is somewhat strange. Um, I've done quite a few, um, but it, it is always kind of odd to not be the one asking the questions and to not have to write the outline. Because uh, <laughs> you know we we I do that uh, we do ours every week, and so there's like a there's kind of a mad rush on you know, Sunday and Monday to try to get an outline together and have all the pieces and you know have the other guy approve it and it's uh, it's way better this way. <laughs> it's easier. Cool. Well, sit back, relax. It's kind of like being a guest at a wedding, right? Just uh, get dressed up, show up, and have a great time. So today, we are taking the Humans of InfoSec podcast in a slightly different direction. I usually have InfoSec people on the show, and today, we've got a developer. Will, welcome. Introduce yourself before I tell our listeners why we've decided to mix things up uh, and bring a coder on with us. Okay. Uh, well, I'm a software developer. Uh, the first time I got paid to write code was in 1998. Um, and I think that code is actually still running and maybe older than some of my coworkers, which is a very weird feeling. Uh, I've, I've always really enjoyed computers. I thought it was the coolest thing in the world to be able to basically tell a machine to do something for me. And then it does it, you know, and I saw my dad kind of do similar stuff with mechanical things in a greenhouse, right. With uh, turning on the water and, and those kind of things. And I always thought that was really a neat process. Uh, not only how he designed everything, but how he hooked all the pieces together and was, was like, okay, you know, I've got this vision and I'm messing with something that looks nothing like that vision. And I make that vision happen. And you know, it's, it's kind of the same thing with me with software development. So I, I grew up basically the best way to put it is out in the sticks, but it was uh, at the end of the power line. So uh, we were way out there and 
my, you know, my dad had a couple different businesses. He had a nursery and then he had a oil distributorship. So I got to go in and play with the computers at the, at the oil company. Uh, I guess it was probably more junior high because he had me like in the office doing stuff. So, so I've always had uh, some degree of computing in my life. I mean, we even had a TRS 80 uh, when I was a kid, which probably, well, I would say that dates me, but I'd say starting to get paid for development in 98 probably does as well. And, uh, you know, I've, Got on through college, uh, got a software development job, was was pretty happy and content there. And then my best friend was in med school and went through uh, a pretty serious personal crisis. And it resulted in him uh, basically you know, leaving med school and his marriage fell apart. And there's a bunch of other stuff that happened. And when he was trying to recover from all this, he you know, we were, we were kind of talking to him and we were trying to keep him busy because he had been on a med school schedule. So we're like, okay, he, he is used to perseverating on something for 16 hours a day. What do we do? And it was me and a couple other developers sitting at the table and we look at each other. And we're like, oh, I know. And we, we kind of had, he had already done some programming like in high school and had, you know, gotten out of it. And we, started talking to him. He's like, yeah, I think I'd like to do that again. And so we got him back into it initially to keep him busy. Um, and then one day he started asking harder questions and we're like, okay, we've, we've set the hook now because he, he's enjoying it. And he's like, I, I think I want to do this for a living. Um, and that's my partner on the podcast. Um, and he's a senior developer as well. Um, so the, the thing that really interested me and, in, you know, recently is that it's not just about the tech, but it's like, I, I can change people's lives in a really, really positive way. Like I've got a tremendous amount of leverage as a developer for uh, doing good things. Of course, a lot of, you know, developers have a tremendous amount of leverage in doing bad things too, which is uh, something you're probably aware of in the security space. But that, you know, kind of led me towards uh, writing a book. My I've got two books out and I am actually working on another one, although it's not for uh, entry level developers anymore. Um, the first one was on surviving whiteboard interviews for developers. And then the second one was on remote work. And, you know, both of those things were, here's how to make a transition in your life that is meaningful and makes it better. So yeah, <laughs> I went on a rant. Sorry. It's a Gantt rant. I love a good Gantt rant. Keep the Gantt rants coming. Okay. You know, I think that you touched on something that is so fundamental to human life, really. You know, there are things in our lives that we cannot control. And there are some right. things that we can control. You know, there's something so natural about watering a plant and watching it grow. Uh, there's something so satisfying about writing some code and watching it work. Um, I think that, you know, I love a good doctor turned software developer story. Um, and I couldn't agree more that, uh, you know, we in technology, we do have such a tremendous ability, uh, to do good. Uh, you know, software is at this point, it's an unavoidable part of my life. Um, I interact with software the the majority of my day every day um and uh yeah i think that's cool you know the way that i think about software being in cybersecurity is that 
The job of cybersecurity folks is to protect digital value. Right. And it is developers who are creating that digital value. Um, I've spent tons of time thinking about the software development lifecycle and the interactions between InfoSec uh, professionals and devs. And I'd really like to hear about your perspective on what those relationships look like. Uh, It's interesting because I have worked in places where the InfoSec person was somebody we never met. Um, it was some dude at the end of the line that ran burp suite on our stuff and told us where we screwed up, um, with no real guidance on how to fix it. It's just like, Hey, you failed. And so that wasn't helpful. And then I've worked in places where, uh, either it was former devs or there was actually like a real, uh, you know, actual security professional in the building. Um, and those were some of the best because what those people did, well, I guess I'll back up. I think software developers, you know, because we're in the creative aspect of things uh, to a large degree, you're like, we're, you said, you know, we're creating value, but uh, we're creating castles in our minds. Right. But we're not thinking about, okay, somebody's going to storm that castle. You know, we, we don't have a model for that, which is, I think one place that the security professionals that are really good, they come in and they give us that. Um, I worked on one system and it's been been years ago, and this is actually this was one of the turning points, I guess, for me was was working on that system because I had some very positive uh, people around me, where I actually found a security hole, and it was a it was a form that people could get to, they could log in, and they're changing their credit card information, and there was a validation control there to say, okay, this this card number is valid. Well, if they're entering a new card, you know, they 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 were PCI compliant, all this stuff, but if the card information was already there you know, instead of shipping just the last four digits, they needed the whole thing for that validator to work. And some developer put that there. And so it would, it would hit a rest endpoint and get that card info. And that was coming down to the client. And it's like, well, you know, you might think that that would work. The problem is, is that if that person is not who they say they are, you know, they got a, you know, breached password or something, and they're in there, now they have somebody's credit card. You have an escalation of privilege uh, type situation. And, you know, I looked at it and I'm like, well, I know, you know, I looked at uh, source control and I was like, okay, who wrote this? And I I looked and it was, it was the best developer on the team, like by far. Hmm. And then I kind of sat there and I'm like, well, I got to tell him. And I, I did, but, you know, that was, that, that particular job was, was interesting to me because I, started looking at stuff and going, okay, if I see bad code, I stop saying it's bad code. And I start saying, how did I get there? Um, or how did he get there in that case? Uh, and I realized, you know, his, his problem wasn't that he was a bad developer. You know, he, he was a very good developer. I learned a lot from him. The problem was, you know, he was working on the thing he was working on and he didn't, you know, it wasn't in his head. Hey, if somebody's coming in here and they're already doing something malicious, what happens? You know, in other words, he didn't have a, he did not have an effective model of evil for that situation. And I think that's the biggest thing that a security professional can give to developers is because, you know, we're, we're looking at the creative aspects and, you know, we have to be focused on that. We've got, 
you know, we've got our user personas. We go, okay, Sally's an accountant and she's better at Excel than anybody you know, and she can do this and this and this and this. And then, you know, Bob is a welder and he hates computers and he's just got to get in here to put in inventory every so often. And he's trying to get in and get out and he's going to do these things. Well, you know, those are user personas and we go, okay, here's their effectively their security access for different things and their, you know, what shows on the screen and all that. But we never think about what if somebody's impersonating Sally, right? That's a third person, a third persona that is actually in your system that you are not aware of as a developer most of the time. And as a result of that, it's very easy to impersonate somebody and get into something that you shouldn't because the developers weren't thinking about that. They weren't thinking, okay, if there's a destructive action that Sally can take, I need to actually make sure that it's her right before that action happens, not just at login and, and trust, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, makes perfect sense, you know? And I think it's so interesting because with this sort of creative mindset that a developer is in as they go into to make something, um, I wonder, you know, what is it like for you, Will, kind of, I wonder if it's fair to say, think of yourself in a state where you only considered the personas that were assumed. Uh, and then, you know, you're talking to me here on this podcast, you're describing some scenarios to me. It's clear that you totally understand that you know, someone's account can be compromised and they can act maliciously. Do you then move forward thinking about that as either a, an additional persona or does that change the way that you think about personas? Or is it, you know, I wonder if it's one of those things you kind of think about all the time or if you, or if you don't, unless a security person brings it up. I'm just honestly curious about what that experience is like for you. I think, I think it is very similar to early 20th century food processing, right? They knew microbes were everywhere, right? And so, so like in a food processing system, you don't go, okay, there's no bacteria here. You have to clean it. There, there will be bacteria. It's in an environment. And I think I have that awareness as a developer um, after that incident and several others, you know, like that's always in the back of my mind. It's like, okay, somebody could be here that shouldn't be you know, what is my, what is my defense in depth here? But I feel like the techniques are not caught up yet. And so it's kind of like, it, it is like early 20th century food processing where there's, there's some bacterial problems, you know, like there's areas where we, we don't see things. We go, okay, I'm securing the API and I trust it, but I have some connection to some microservice, you know, on the back end. What if it gets compromised or the communication channel gets, you know, compromised? How do I, you know, what are my mitigation strategies on that? And I think, that's an area that developers are still pretty soft on. You know, we can, when we secure systems, we tend to make the assumption that there is a wall that is impenetrable at some level. And once you get inside that wall, everything's completely safe. And that's not a true assumption, especially, you know, now with remote work, I think that's one of the things that is really getting some people's attention. Previously, you know, I worked at a company where, you know, they had a firewall, they had really restrictive rules on what goes in and out. Inside the system, everybody knew everybody else's passwords. And, you know, by the way, that's how security was done in the 90s, right? It was uh, pretty horrendous, just 
looking back on it, it's, it's a wonder that we have a civilization, but um, <laughs> I mean, really, like I think it's about true. stuff. And I, it's true. Oh. <laughs> I mean, and you know, it's not really as though things are so much better today. No, I mean, the not. first ransomware attack I think was in what 1989 or something. And here we yep. are in 2022. And the big question is, you know, what's going to be the next target for a right. ransomware attack? Um, so there are things uh, that have not changed. Uh, and it makes sense. It makes sense. You know, I wonder, Will, if you'd, we've talked a little bit about some of the characteristics um, of developers, you know, kind of broadly speaking, you know, I, you know, on this podcast, I've had opportunities to talk to tons of people in cybersecurity. And I'd say, generally speaking, these folks, they love technology, they love to play with stuff, they love to learn, they love to break things, you know, they love to be in an environment that's changing all the time, where every day presents new challenges. Uh, I wonder if you have a way that you think about uh, or that you describe folks in the developer community. Uh, and I also wonder if uh, that community from your perspective has, has changed, you know, over the years. Well, there's definitely a lot of, uh, of crossover. Uh, you know, we, we always like to tinker. I mean, before we got on uh, this call, you know, I was telling you, I'm about to mess with my uh, recording stuff on Linux because you know, I'm trying to get that working. And I'm always, you know, I've got a NAS here at the house. I've got my own network set up. I've got all kinds, I've got more stuff that I don't need in this room right now um, to play with. Uh, you know, these are my toys. And I think that's a developer characteristic. I also think it's a characteristic of pretty much anybody that's in tech. I don't know that that necessarily draws people to tech. I think the lack of it just means that you don't stay long. That's sort of the way we are as a, as a group. Uh, I would say in the 90s and the you know 2000s and even in the 2010s, it felt like stuff was not changing as fast as it feels like it changes now. There's a there's a security landscape that is obviously shifting uh, all the time, and there's you know, platform changes. There's all the cloud stuff. You know, we have people, you know, large numbers of people now working remotely. So the old, you know, the old fashioned, uh, you know, my, my firewall is my company's castle wall doesn't work anymore because there's Trojan horses going in and out all day. Um, you can't do things that way anymore. And it's, it's interesting watching people adjust. I, I think the part I like the most is the fact that there's always something new to learn, but that you can build on expertise. Uh, so if you, you know, if you know old systems, uh, a lot of times they're underlying the new systems. I, I run into stuff at work now that, I mean, I've, I've had to troubleshoot some things at work that I learned how to deal with in probably the late, you know, mid to late nineties. Like when I was learning how to code, you know, low level uh, graphics API stuff, you know, then again, my best friend is messaging me right now about an angular problem that I don't have a clue about. I don't know why he's messaging me, but he is. And I, I like that mix, you know, we, we can all grow in it. And I, I really think that the security professionals and the devs are, it's almost like the same people, but they're pointed at different objectives. And that, I think that's the source of most friction because the, the developer is like, okay, I got to deliver this value. And, you know, who's this guy over here? What is burp suite? What is this thing? You know, what, you know, that's, that's the main tool. It seems like that gets used against me. So, uh, um, but 
you know, that's what the developer perspective is. And then the security perspective is going to be like, hey, these goobers are putting something out here on the open internet and it's going to get breached. Like they're not looking at anything. And, and those two perspectives can be at cross purposes, especially when you have weird organizational patterns that are going on that says, okay, we're going to treat these two people like two different teams versus they're integrated on one team and you know, the team is going together. Uh, you know, we learned this with QA in software yes. development. Yes. You know, it used to be QA was a different department and, you know, they would beat you up on your code. They're just like, oh, you're, you know, you're awful and your stuff is breaking all the time. And, you know, there, there were, there was some hostility there and the best teams I've been on, the QA has been integrated into the team. It's like, that's just part of it. You know, they're, they're there to watch your back and you're there to watch theirs and you're working as a single unit. And I feel like the, from the security perspective, you kind of have the same thing going on there if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, gosh, there's just something so fundamental about when we feel like we're in a social situation where we're working against someone else versus when we're working together. I mean, it's just, it's just different. Uh, And maybe, you know, it's so interesting because Certainly a lot of the security folks I know, I know, certainly a lot of the dev folks I know love technology, you know, and when it comes to security folks, dev folks working really effectively together, sometimes I wonder if, you know, what makes the difference in some cases, because I'll talk to folks like yourself, right, and I'll hear folks say, uh, there was this one time and this person was very difficult to work with, you know, and then I'll hear another, and then there was this other time, and this person was such a pleasure to work with, uh, and it's like, what's the difference, you know, and I wonder, I'll go ahead and say, I think that for security people, sometimes there are soft skills that can make all the difference in terms of getting folks to partner and collaborate and, and work effectively with each other, you know, I wonder what that looks like from your perspective on the developer side, you know, is there an advantage to a developer honing their soft skills? Uh, I would say there is actually, um, I'm friends with John Sanmez who actually wrote a book on software developer uh, soft skills uh, and his company actually pu- published my second book on remote work. And I've found that the developers that, don't have soft skills. It doesn't matter how good they are at the code. They, there's a plateau that they hit in their career and they can't get past it. And that plateau is defined by what they're capable of doing by themselves, which is usually not enough. Uh, you know, these days there are so many layers to applications and so many different disciplines involved that if you really, if you don't have soft skills now, you can't make it. I mean, you know, back in the day you made a, you know, battleship gray, you know, visual basic form and, it talked directly to a database and you knew about those two things. You didn't have to worry about the web. You could get by now. You, you really can't. Um, and I, I will say that, you know, you're saying some security professionals don't necessarily have soft skills. Developers have a reputation that we're known for not having them because you got a lot of people, I think honestly, that got into the industry because they, they didn't like dealing with people, but they could deal with the machines. And, you know, you get a certain distance in there and, and that absolutely works. Uh, but, but past that point, it doesn't. And when you talk to those people and you, you kind of make it clear, it's like, Hey, you know, get some social skills, learn how to learn how to play office politics, or at least how to not get played 
by office politics and let them have one, one or two victories on that. And they're sold on the soft skills. But when it sounds like marketing stuff, they don't, they don't want to have anything to do with it. And, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But the soft skills, I mean, I, I worked with one guy who's a great developer, but you know, it's not just, it's not just soft skills. It's, it's like overall presentation of how you're doing stuff. The guy was a really good developer. We finally just started taking over for him when stuff had to be shown to management because we realized, you know, he just wasn't there yet. Uh, dude was an unbelievably fast coder. He could understand things in depth that, you know, very quickly that the rest of us couldn't get there as fast as he could. But he was very, very abrasive. He um, didn't wear deodorant and he was in a South facing office uh, in the South. Oh boy. And he looked like the Burger King mascot and always wore heavy metal band t-shirts to work. <laughs> um, and that didn't really, that didn't go so well with the suits. They still employed him because they liked what he could produce, but it was, it was always, there was always a lot of friction uh, in, in that interaction. And so there's a certain number of those kind of people anywhere, but most other people can learn uh, how, to, how to interact. It, it just, it takes a while. And I think a lot of people don't understand that that's a skill especially if you were a nerd in high school. I know I was, you know, until probably senior year, I know for a fact I fit in lockers. But, you know, you, you thought about the popular people and you're like, oh, well, they, you know, they're just popular and that's just the way it is. It's like, no, that person worked on that. You know, at some point in their life, somebody sat them down and said, you can't do these things this way or you make enemies. That's what the popular kids were that and a lot of them were more attractive or whatever but I you know that was yeah that's kind of I think most of that was personality you know and and looking at it and going okay they just were naturally they had their stuff together and it's, it's like no nobody naturally has their stuff together we we come into the world screaming and naked like we all get here the same way like that's not we're not naturally good at anything we have to learn it I totally agree I totally yeah. agree and I think that, you know, each of us, some things come a little more naturally to each of us than others. And others, you know, we have to decide to learn them if we accept that they're valuable enough skills. Yeah. Um, and some folks don't want to, some folks don't believe you know, that, that it's a valuable skill. Uh, and in some cases that's going to be okay. Sometimes we can partner with those folks and you can take the person who's very, very strong technically, and you can take the person who's very, very strong socially, and you can put them together and together they can make magic. Uh, and then there's other cases where you put those folks together and they just don't understand each other. It just doesn't yeah. click. Um, you know, and this is, this is what it's like to, to be human and to, and to make technology. Well, and, and one other thing too, I see security folks do, and I understand why, why they don't do this for developers, but when you find a security uh, violation of some sort, I, I don't know, like probably not SQL injection anymore because you, you, you probably ought to smack them if they're at that level, but um, uh, something that's a little bit more, a little bit more complex, you know, with, you know, cross-site request forgery or something like that. If the security professional just says, oh, this is a C-surf issue and you need to do blah, blah, blah. When you tell that to developers, that's a work item. If you go over there to them and you go, hey, I found this thing. Take a look at this. And you like, you let your nerd flag fly and you walk them through what you did. 
the, the developer is now on your side, right? Because they saw your eyes light up. They heard the, 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 the tone in your voice, you know, because we're, we're pretty attuned, honestly, to other people who are very, very interested in something, even if it's not something that we like, because we recognize that feeling. Because uh, that, that's why we're convinced to sit in a basement somewhere looking at a screen all day. Uh, you know, that's the thing that brought us here. And so we recognize that. And when we see it in other people, it makes us more empathetic to where they're coming from on stuff. And I wish, I wish security professionals did that more often, which, you know, being integrated on a team, they would do that probably because uh, it's their peers versus uh, somebody they're auditing. Uh, but that's something I've, I've often thought would be really helpful. Like my QA team does that when they find bugs. Um, they're, they're real good about like getting me on screen and showing me yes. exactly how they approached it. And yes. that that's super duper helpful. Yes. Oh, couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. Will last question for you. I've got to ask you what you think about remote work. I spent a bunch of my career in Silicon Valley. We've all been living the past couple of years in pandemic land. Uh, and, and I think for, for technologists, we're super fortunate uh, that we have an opportunity uh, to do uh, remote work uh, some of or all of the time. You know, your, your doctor buddy, uh, if he was going to be seeing patients in the clinic, uh, that is certainly not work that a person can do remote. Um, would love to hear thoughts that you have on remote work today. Uh, well, there's, there's several interesting things that the, the impetus for writing the book was that I was working at a company where someone did convince management to let them work remotely. Um, and management, I, I really don't know what they were thinking because this person really didn't, they were not terribly effective in the office. Um, but they let the guy work remote on a day when the board was meeting. And this is a company with, I think they had 15 people at that point. And he's working from home. You know, I was on a call with him that morning and, and you could hear all kinds of racket in the background. His kids are in a fight in the floor. The TV's blaring. His wife's yelling at the kids, dogs barking. I mean, it was absolute chaos. It was, it was a look into somebody's life that was just really uh, hard to see. And I was like, okay, this is going to be interesting when we have the board meeting later, but you know, he doesn't report to me. I don't report to him. So, you know, this ought to be entertaining at least. And we go in and we have the board meeting and we have, you know, the older, you know, owners of the company or, you know, basically the board. And some of these guys had flown in and we're all kind of the entire company is sitting around the, you know, the one conference table and, you know, people are, are showing different stuff on screen uh, to the board members. And I, I covered the story in the book. So it, it is a very silly story, but he, you know, he gets on screen and he's on a 60 inch wide 4k TV. You know, he's up there like, you know, like, like Dr. Evil, you know, about to explain what he's doing. And, you know, our, our boss had, had said, you know, I really don't like the idea of remote work, especially with, you know, these kind of stakes. And, you know, he, he had to work remote that day, which he really didn't. And uh, he completely screwed it up because right as every, everything gets calm, and everybody's staring at the screen, waiting on him to start showing the software that he had, had been working on. His cat jumps up on the keyboard and puts its backside up the camera. Very, oh very gosh. close. Oh my gosh. And, <laughs> and I was sitting there going, you know, he really didn't sell that very well. <laughs> you know, I was, so 
and, and so that's why I wrote the book is because I was like, you know, this was not a technical problem, right? His he he came through clear in 4K. His audio was good. Uh, the <laughs> video the All video was crisp. 4K. My yeah, the video goodness. was extremely crisp. Uh, and you know, like they they still joke about that situation. And and that was the thing. I was like, you know, this guy isn't. He's failing not because he's selling. He's failing to sell the tech, but he isn't doing the soft skill stuff to make people feel like they can trust him. And he's not, you know, selling it in a less risky scenario to make sure his his stuff actually works. And so that's what got me uh, interested in remote work. My my book actually. I think came out, was it the week that COVID became a pandemic? Oh, wow. What incredible yeah, so, timing. I mean, that well, was just like. If it, had, if it had come out like a month earlier, it would have really done well because it took it a little bit to get up in the ratings on Amazon. Sure. Um, but it was, I was going to say it was like number three in, in one of the categories for like two days or something. And then it just fell, you know, fell back down like they always do. But if that had hit right, that would have been amazing. But yeah, I, I like I like the remote work thing. Um, there are always problems with stuff. I mean, one thing is is you have managers who don't know how to manage um, unless they're looking at somebody and that person's pretending to work. Um, you know, you can't as an IT professional, you probably do not work eight hours a day realistically, just because of you know, like at least not full throttle, just because you you, you burn out doing that. Um, I would also say that it's it's been kind of weird with COVID because a lot of people have worked remotely who either had, uh, you know, they either lacked the ability to really do it um, or they didn't have the discipline or the other skills that were necessary. You know, when you talk on a, a phone call, you, you have to kind of, you, you have to throw your voice a little bit more than you would in a normal conversation with somebody. You know, we know this as podcasters, right? Do you, you know, your, your questions go up more at the end. <laughs> so true. Yeah. Um, and you know, I've had to learn that taking foreign language classes online too, because that throws off, uh, you know, intonation and those kind of things, because I'm, I go into my podcaster mode and that's not what I need to do. And so there's a lot of people that don't adjust to that. There's also organizations that don't adjust very well because it got forced on them. Um, which was, was unfortunate. I mean, I guess it was, it was necessary. Um, you know, for everybody to get home, but a lot of places were completely caught flat-footed. Uh, the company I was working for, uh, they were more than half remote, I think, at, at that point, and so they just sent everybody home. Like, the next day, we're like, okay, what's, you know, so-and-so's got a slow internet connection, I think everybody else is good. You know, it was totally fine. We were, we were completely set up for it, and it was, it was no problem whatsoever. Uh, one of the companies I worked for before, the one where Dude Bro had the cat, uh, they had a really hard time with that transition because they're, you know, like they're, I think their router or their, they had some kind of like security VPN endpoint device. I'm not exactly sure what the thing was. It was a big gray box. It was rack mounted and I stayed away from it because uh, it wasn't my department. But I think that thing was not capable of actually handling the whole office remoting Ooh, in yeah and so there was yeah. and and nobody had headsets because the other thing they did is they they hired a they they didn't like people that gamed too much and it's like well every gamer has a headset at home like if you're going to get people for remote work that's what you want because they spent two hundred dollars on a nice headset and you don't have to spend thirty dollars on a crappy one so it, it varied there 
Um, one other thing I will say about remote work that I think is, that has emerged on this. I didn't think of it when I was writing the book or it would have been a smarter, there would have been some things that would have been said in a smarter way is that remote work is kind of like eating dirt uh, in the sense, like as a kid, obviously, like you don't I hope you don't do that as an adult. I, hope I, I know, does it? Yeah. But I might have a dirt eating story. <laughs> we'll save that for another time over beverages. Yeah. But it, you know, it, it sort of builds your company's immune system, right? You, yes. you now know yes. that, that the, you know, internal network of, of your company, you know, it's got packets coming from somebody's house going over that. And you have to accept that and you have to, you know, work on your internal security in a way that acknowledges that that is a fact, even though it was probably a fact before then. Yep. Um, and, and so that's been interesting just watching, you know, some of those things come out where they're like, okay, you know, we are going to have the Windows firewalls on, on all the machines on, on the network. And we're going to have, you know, proper security stuff. And we're not, you know, we're not going to be shoring, uh, storing customer passwords in a text file in SharePoint and, you know, just <laughs> on and on and on, you know, which I know of a company that, that was doing that years ago and I'm surely they fixed that by now. I but, hope so. <laughs> yeah. uh, surely, surely they have. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, like, again, I mean, I, I go back to the nineties, uh, you know, like that scene and I don't know if you're familiar with Lord of the Rings the movies. A little bit. Like the hobbits go to the mines of Moria and there's like a password, a password on the door. And they're like, Oh, what's the word? And you know, you have to say the word friend and the door's open so and good. just lets whoever in that, that happens to be it's, hanging out there. Yep, yep. Like that was, pa that was password security in the nineties. Um, totally. Yeah. Characterization. Oh goodness. Yeah. It really, <laughs> um, and I think with, with remote work, you know, people, people are moving around, you know, sometimes people are at coffee shops, you know, we, we can't always assume that the person can get on the VPN necessarily yeah. um or that that's desirable uh you know we have to tell people hey you know be careful about your workstation at home you know we, you know, we have to set policies that say hey this this machine you know locks after you know x number of minutes or whatever yep you know because hey hey you know dude bros at home with a cat and the kids you know what happens you know when he's got sequel open with some you know massive delete statement that he's working on and you know, the kids get into a fight over the Flintstones and then, you know, one of them runs in there and slams his hand down on the laptop and happens to hit F5 and runs that query on production. Mm -hmm. Right. Like there's, there's all those kind of dynamics that companies are having to think about. They're having to think about what happens if a work laptop gets stolen. Yes. <laughs> you know, like the physical security thing. And, and they're having to accept that I can't say that this thing is always going to be in a locked area. Right. Right. Yeah, it, um, it completely changes the attack surface remote work. It's, um, it's been a fascinating study, I think, both in terms of how do we adapt uh, to changing situations. Um, and also, um, you know, now we're just figuring out how, how to move forward, how to move forward <laughs> and keep having the fun uh, and, and also try and collaborate, you know, remotely. Super super interesting times ahead that's for sure yeah and it uh, you know it, it's forced change right and yes. when you have a forced change you have you have growth yes um, that's right and, and this is one of these you know like if you look at at the evolution of tech as 
being a sequence sequence of relative equilibrium punctuated by sudden change. Mm. Uh, You know, most of the most interesting things happen right after the change, right? Like you, you know, you ended up with, uh, I don't know if you remember the, like the late nineties, there was the, I love you virus that went around on email. I remember. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Um, I, I, I was working support when, when that one happened um oh fun yeah that was that was really really awesome um (laughs) yeah there was no overtime on that one um (laughs) right but that that changed because that got everybody's attention they're like hey i can't believe something that just came in through email i can't necessarily click on an attachment and you had all these people that just all of a sudden that was part of their world and so if you were developing software that was throwing stuff over the wire in an email, all of a sudden now your clients are like, I'm not doing that. And, you know, a little bit later we had uh, September 11th and well, well we had Y2K, um, yeah. which was always, it was, I think to some degree overblown, although there, you know, I do know of systems that had problems uh, that mm. were like ancient, you know, it, it, it was honestly more of a surprise that the system lasted until Y2K <laughs> than that it, had problems afterward. Uh, <laughs> now, I'm talking business basic for Xenix, like some mm-hmm. old stuff that they had at the oil company that was, um, you know, that was an issue. But that was something where we go, okay, we have to be specific about dates. We, we can't be stupid for two bytes like, again. Right. Um, you know, September 11th was another, another sea change. Um, yeah. I would say, uh, was it Enron? Was it Enron or whichever one that introduced like the Sarbanes Oxley stuff? You know, there's a, there is, some degree of security component in that definitely you know Lons and, of security controls in there yeah and you know that was that was a big thing and then uh you know obviously you know coronavirus was a big one the the one that the one that kind of makes me uncomfortable right now is we have a major land war going on in europe yes we do and i, I don't I, I can tell you the development community you know they're aware of the war but they're not aware of the security implications because they're they're used to going okay you know here's some hacking collective that's going to try to break into the system okay how do we stop them well you know what if it's the government of like belarus or something trying to break in yeah you know they have different motivations they you know they get in there and they impersonate somebody they're not likely after credit card information they're after something else or they want to use your platform to launch something else oh yeah software is vulnerable and nation states have reasons to you know, execute on cyber attacks. It is, that is reality today for sure. Yeah. For well, sure. I mean, I had somebody tell me they're like, you know, having a computer is like having a genie, except only the first wish is yours. Mm, that's a good one. And it's just kind of like the more you think about that, the more uncomfortable that makes you because you realize that there's three in there. <laughs> And so there's the, there's the horrible thing that you, you can probably envision. And then there's something after that, yeah. that, you know, that you can't. And yeah, yeah it is, uh, it, it is liable to get very interesting. The unpredictable. Ah, uh, yeah. well, well, I, I wish that, um, I wish that we could just keep going. I know you I know? do too. Um, this has been so much fun. Um, we should do this more often. 
Thank you. Yeah, definitely. So, so much for your time today, for sharing your stories and your thoughts with us. We appreciate it. Uh, and I cannot wait to see what's next for you. We'll be keeping our eyes on you. Thank you so much, Will. All righty. Thank you. Humans of InfoSec is brought to you by Cobalt, a pen test as a service company. You can find us on Twitter at Humans of InfoSec.